Hi, and welcome to a brand new episode of Record Talk Listen. My name is Lydia, and thank you so much for joining me. On today's show, Dr. Matthew Alloway returns to us, and he's here to discuss a new medical device four years in the making, the Precision Point. This device essentially gets urology out of your rectum. So Matthew started his company, Perineologic, to improve patient care and reduce infections uh, using a transperineal approach. So for those of you who might not know what a transperineal approach is, make sure that you continue to listen and you'll find out. So a reason to do this episode kicking off the first episode of June is because it's Men's Health Month. So along with this episode, make sure you listen to Dr. Alloway's previous episode, number 48, and it addresses all of men's health issues. And so you're wondering where you might find that episode? Well, on our website, and that's recordtalklisten.com. Make sure to head over there and make sure you look at the right-hand side. There's a donate button if you are feeling fancy. Worst case scenario, you support a local podcast giving you fantastic information, uh, uh, groundbreaking information like what you're going to hear today. So uh, when you're there, you can search. All the episodes are available for you to listen to for free. You can also subscribe through iTunes, Podcast Republic, Stitcher, and now Google Play. So there's plenty of platforms for you to listen to the podcast. You can subscribe, and like magic, every Sunday, a new episode will appear on your listening device. Just a quick announcement, Relish Pod, the Relish Podcast um, with Mark and Tim, will return um, soon. Um, In the meantime, if you're wanting to know where the previous recipes are for episodes one and two, Check out their website, and that's relishpod.com. And they're on Twitter, and it's at relishpod. So the word relish and then pod at. So make sure you get in contact with us. Um, send us your recipes and show ideas. We'd love to We'd love to hear it. So without further ado, here is Matthew Alloway from Perineologic. Matt Alloway, thanks for coming back. Thank you for having me. So you've had some pretty exciting things happen in the past few months. Lots of jet lag and a lot of excitement and 24 hour thinking about what we've done, what we're doing and what we're going to do is mentally exhausting, but but exciting. Yeah. It's what I've been waiting for for a long time. We started basically a whole new company and you had a genius idea that's going to uh, help a lot of people. Yeah, you might have one genius idea in your lifetime. With me, maybe it's the only one, but I think we, yeah, we found something pretty magical. Okay, well, let's exciting. talk about it. What is it? Well, it's called the Precision Point Transperineal Access System. Okay. Which is the first product with our new startup medical device company, Perineologic. The Precision Point allows the urologist or uh, perhaps a radiation oncologist or even a trained um, advanced practice professional like a nurse practitioner sure. or a PA to transition from the transrectal approach mm-hmm. of essentially biopsying the prostate to the transperineal approach, which has been done in the past many, many years ago. 35 years ago, the transperineal approach was how we did it. Mm-hmm. But at that time, we didn't have ultrasound guidance. Okay. And then... So you're going in the in early blind. 80s. So yeah, you had a it. finger in the rectum, and then with another biopsy device, you you um, stab through the perineum and you hope you didn't get your finger <laughs> or a lot of skeletal muscle, and hoped you grabbed some prostate tissue. And then 
they developed transrectal ultrasounds okay. and we could actually image the prostate real time mm -hmm. to look for abnormalities, hoping that that would help us identify the cancer and then place a needle in it and then diagnose. Yeah. It turns out the ultrasound wasn't, in fact, that sensitive or specific for cancer, okay. but it at least guided us and allowed us to take samples we knew we were sticking the needle and right. we were actually getting prostate tissue and not our finger. Mm -hmm. And that's been the standard approach for the last 34 years. And we've reinvented the prostate biopsy, come full circle back to the perineum, but with the new improved version. Why is rectal not the best option now that you have this? For those that don't understand the terminology, transrectal or transperineal basically mm -hmm. means passing through rectum or passing through the perineum. The perineum or the taint, as some refer to it mm -hmm. in our neck of the woods, uh, the region of skin between the scrotum and the anus. Yes. Uh, the uh, prostate is situated so you could you could strike it from either angle. Now, when you go transrectal, essentially what you're doing is you're sticking a needle through a contaminated field. Fecal. Fecal material. Mm -hmm. So um, many folks outside of the U.S. use the term the transfecal biopsy because that's actually what it is. Yes. Um, even though you may cleanse the rectum with a bowel prep, even though you give the patient antibiotics, mm -hmm. you're still piercing through a contaminated field to sample the prostate. It would be like me suggesting to you, Lydia, we're going to do a breast biopsy and I'm going to put it through, you know, your dog's poop. Right. First. I mean, yeah. it, it, it absolutely is insane to even consider the fact that with a better way, a better avenue, we would still be doing this to patients. Right. And it worked for many years. For the better part of 20 years, it was acceptable because the infection rates were low mm -hmm. because the bacteria at that time were very sensitive to quinolone antibiotics and sulfa antibiotics, yes. and therefore we could prophylax the patient. Mm. Now, over the last 10 years, the rate of infection after a simple biopsy in the United States on a, on a well-established um, peer-reviewed article, SEER database analysis showed the rate would be around 6% with perhaps 2% or so having sepsis. And for those of you who aren't familiar with sepsis, sepsis basically means the bacteria is taken over in your bloodstream mm -hmm. and you are in a potential for shock or death. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, there have been many men who have lost limbs, uh, lost um, mental faculties, right. and some have lost their lives from sepsis after a prostate biopsy. That, in fact, was the motivation in the very beginning for me to even go on this journey. So it was ultimately patient care. About four years ago, I was noticing in our practice, very busy practice with um, at least at least a couple hundred biopsies performed a year, we were starting to see infection about at least once, maybe a quarter or a few times a year. Now, you might think, well, that's not a big number. We're not talking, though, about a patient calling the next day and saying, I'm burning and I'm peeing frequently. We're talking about a patient who has shaking chills mm -hmm. at 1 o'clock in the morning about 30 hours after their prostate biopsy. They're immediately told to go to the emergency room. Mm -hmm. They're admitted. They're put on broad-spectrum antibiotics intravenously. Mm -hmm. They spend at least two to four days in the hospital with a hospital cost that can range anywhere 
between $15,000 and $50,000, depending on the level of care they required for that admission. Right. Now, when these patients get an infection, the first person they look at is the urologist. And yeah. in, in this particular case, me, they would look at me thinking, I must not have done my job. Did you give me antibiotics? Did you not give me the right antibiotics? And I was following all the guidelines that right. we've been you know, instructed on. Yeah, yeah. So I started thinking, okay, well, maybe I need to look to the, uh, the major urology associations on new guidelines for prophylaxis. Now, this is four years ago, and this topic was just beginning to surface. Because there's so many like super strains of bacteria now that are not responding to prophylaxis antibiotics. Is that the issue? Exactly. Yeah. The uh, rate of quinolone resistance, quinolone being Leviquin Cipro, which yeah. are very, very good at penetrating tissue, especially from the pathogens that you might uh, encounter doing a, a prostate biopsy, mm -hmm. is up to 20% just in Western Maryland. Wow. And in some parts of the world, it may be 40% to 60%. Parts of India are as high as sixty percent. It's as if they mm. put the quinolones in the water supply. It's so really, it's just really a, an interesting topic just in and of itself. Huh. Therefore, uh, the the guidelines um, and the associations really were sort of vague on what we should do. I switched antibiotics, started giving some IV antibiotics. Mm -hmm. I also reintroduced a bowel prep before, and I still was getting. The same result, the yeah. infection. Hmm. At that point, I said, that's it. No more rectum. Done with it. And I knew a, a technique that I used for cryosurgery of the prostate called freehand technique, okay. where I would I would have a cryoprobe in one hand that was freely movable, okay. and I would steer it into the prostate with my other hand on the ultrasound probe, okay. and I would position it within the prostate where I desired. I figured if I could do that, then I could, do, I could steer the biopsy needle into the prostate the same way and take samples. Mm -hmm. But I needed, you know, sort of like an access approach and I would use a very simple, cheap 14 gauge needle. And that way I didn't have to repuncture the skin with the biopsy gun every time I went in. Right. I could re-enter. Okay. And I switched and I started A, noticing no infections. And then B, I started noticing when I compared this cohort with the patients prior done transrectal, my cancer detection rate was up about 15 to 20%. It's because you can access more of the prostate tissue more yes. accurately. Is that correct? Yes. If you look at the trajectory, if you go transperineal, you're more in line with the axis of the prostate in, okay. with the zones of the prostate where the cancer lives. Therefore, when the biopsy needle enters the prostate, you're getting an entire full capture of the zone of interest Okay. versus transrectal where you could somewhat obtain in this fashion, but often your angle of entry is thus that you're capturing some tissue of the prostate where cancer is often not, not found. found. More and anterior? It, is that well, the anterior area is very important. And for those that don't know, the anterior is sort of the top half of the prostate. Mm -hmm. To get it from the rectal approach is very, is you have to um, go about doing it with intention. Mm -hmm. It just doesn't happen by finesse. piercing. Yeah, exactly. So it can be done. Uh, many prostate biopsies, transrectal, I will tell you, are probably not done that well. Mm -hmm. But if you really try, you could hit the anterior zone. But with the transperineal, it's the easiest zone of the prostate to obtain tissue from. And you get again, you get a full 100% sample of really good tissue where the cancer can hide. So it was more strategic. Yeah. And plus, you're getting 
um, more accurate tissue samples that aren't contaminated and you're able to detect cancer much quicker. Yes, I just um, returned from London and I was at a dinner meeting with a bunch of urologists um, in London at uh, Guy's and Thomas Hospital. And Peter Thompson, who is a, a very respected urologist and researcher, uh, shared his experience. He was very passionate about getting urology out of the rectum. Mm -hmm. And he uh, shared some of his recent work. This interesting paper showed that in uh, a cohort of maybe 69 patients, they all had a, a transrectal biopsy. And what he did was he measured in the bloodstream endotoxins uh, from the bacteria, which are okay. from gram-negative yeah. bacteria. He measured it at five minutes, 30 minutes, and I think 24 hours later. Mm -hmm. At five minutes... I believe it was 90% of the patients had endotoxins in their bloodstream. 9% wow. had a positive blood culture. Oh, now, 90, that means that basically transrectal, you're essentially injecting bacteria, into, clearly injecting it into, into the, bloodstream. the bloodstream because the prostate's a very spongy tissue. Yeah. Would you want that done yourself? No. Well, after I finished about 270 patients with this approach, mm -hmm. I was impressed because at first I thought the first year, you know, this could be a fluke. Maybe I'm just, you know, I had a bad run prior with infections. Now I'm just have a good run. Yeah. Well, after about 270 or so, I figured, you know, this is more than just a fluke. I mean, I knew intuitively the infection rate would reduce. I knew from the literature that infections were virtually um, uh, zero or negligible. Um, therefore I was not surprised, but I thought it was time to share the technique. And that's when I submitted, uh, based on my wife's, um, uh, encouragement, Persistent. I, I had Dave Romero, <laughs> uh, come to the office and we did a nice professional production of my technique. I, yeah. I thought great. I'll submit it to the international meeting. It got accepted and got an award in the best of the best. So that was 2014. So everything aligned. So you saw a need and then you rose to the occasion and you're doing great. Obviously, the patients must like this a lot better. The patients, um, we have found, we have a surgical facility. Mm -hmm. We can offer sedation for our biopsies. And when we ask a patient, would you prefer to be awake or sedated? What we found is that it is better to let them decide. Yeah. We don't want them to be too anxious. Okay. So if they're sedated, sometimes they're not really aware of what happened to them. But I did transition, and I've transitioned to a large degree. I, I would prefer to do almost all of mine now under local because that was the next stage in, in development for to really push the technique um, you know, to the mainstream. Right. And there those are patients that I've now done under local anesthesia that were done transrectal in the past who said, you know, clearly uh, this was easier in many ways. Mm -hmm. They were more comfortable. Yeah. And they thought, why would anyone even want to be sedated for it? Well that's good. So it wasn't awful. No, we did and presented our um, early cohort of the procedure done under local mm -hmm. at the AUA this year. And what we found was we did pain scores at all portions of the procedure and compared that with prior data on transrectal and found it was either comparable or slightly lower at different phases of the procedure. That was important because yeah. in 2014, the big criticism was, okay, this is all fine and dandy, but you know, you're at that time, that cohort of 270 were all done under sedation, mm -hmm. but you have to sedate your patients and that increases cost and that's not good for the system. Therefore, what I had to be able to do was a 
um, do it under local, mm -hmm. sure that it could be done. And the second was to make it trainable. I mean, we're talking about going into a very different um, technique approach right. through the perineum. Mm -hmm. Many urologists had very little experience with transperineal surgery. Okay. Therefore, how do we make, because the technique that I was doing had some limitations, plus it was a little tricky to teach. Okay. So I had to come up with some sort of a system or a device to facilitate doing it better and allow people to transition with the same hand and eye coordination is what they were used to mm -hmm. under local. And that was the huge leap that brought us where we're at now with this company and the whole, um, the whole launch that we just yeah. came back from last week. That's great. So people in London, very receptive. The trip to London was, uh, was about three weeks ago, mm -hmm. and we um, connected with a um, a very prominent urologist at MD Anderson, who um, evaluated the work we did and was very interested in working with us. Mm -hmm. There was a name in London named Rick Popert. He he is also a very respected and uh, well written uh, urologist whose um, emphasis has been lately on transperineal approach. It turns out that Dr. Davis knew Dr. Popert. I asked if I could share my work with him, and he looked at it, you know, sent an email with the work and, and the technique and mm -hmm. all of this. He was very excited, invited us out to London, where we spent um, the better part of five days working, watching. I did a very nice lecture at a visiting professorship and also trained the the, the urologist on the technique with the device. How did the training go? Was that the first time you've done a big training like that? I mean, I've worked with other urologists in the U.S. This is the first time, you know, in a European, um, in a UK yeah. healthcare system model. Sure. Um, I was, of course, nervous just because, you know, the device was just recently um, available for me to train um, right. because of the FDA and some of those mm -hmm. processes of regulation. Therefore, I was nervous. Like, how is this going to perform? I mean, I do it all the time. I've used it for my validation studies. I know it works, but what about another pair of hands? And right. what will their opinion be after using it? Well, I'm probably 20% into the first case, you know, Dr. Popert grabbed it uh, and made all the moves exactly right. And by the time he finished the first case, he was practically ready to teach the rest of his colleagues, which he did That's actually amazing. do. So it, it was just... Um, really made me feel good because the reaction was, um, you know, overwhelming that we kind of solved a puzzle, if you it's will. It's like the missing piece. I think we may have actually, yeah. because transperineal was around, but the way it was done traditionally mm -hmm. over these years has been using a, a, a very bulky contraption called a stepper unit with a grid. Yeah. This is how we used to administer, and we still administer, brachytherapy or or seed therapy for prostate cancer. Okay. And it has a grid with A through G and 1 through 12, and you sort of like a peg hole, you stick your needles through this, and it and you watch under ultrasound. The probe is fixed to this device, um, and the probe is in the, in the rectum. Unfortunately, you could do it under local, but it's very challenging. So as a result, their patients are put under general. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in the U.K. where, you know, the, um, the operating theater – time is very valuable and very expensive right anything that can improve that experience is very welcome sure and therefore um as a result the the private um pay patients in the uk 
often we'll get it with this very nice uh, transperineal approach, but then the patients on the National Health Service may wind up still with transrectal, which they know is really suboptimal. Right. Uh, they were very excited to know that maybe for the first time we have a product that we can do to replace transrectal or transfecal biopsy once and for all, done. Great. And that was really um, boosted um, our enthusiasm at that juncture, especially before Absolutely. the international launch. Yeah. And then you did your international launch in San Diego. Yes. That I was just got back last week. Yeah, I was going to say it was last week that you got back. Yeah. How did that go? Well, this was putting on a very new hat. Here I am as, you know, I've been a urologist for 14 years. Now I'm part inventor, I'm part salesman, part mark, marketeer. Yeah, absolutely. And still a urologist at heart. You're wearing many hats. And it was challenging because I'm I'm an old shoe salesman back in, you know, my earlier days. Right. Uh you know, so I know how to sell, okay. but I don't want to be a salesman with the you air quotes. You want to be now. like the salesperson. Yeah. I wanted to you know be, be that guy, right? But yet, you know, when you're talking about a disruptive technology, yeah, and a and a very new way of thinking about things, you've got to be a little be more forward because yeah. you know we don't. I don't have time um, to waste. We really want to push this field forward. We want to change the standard of care. Yeah, for the better. I mean, exactly. that, that's the thing. I, there's no, I can't see any negatives other than optimal patient care, less infection rate. It's like it ticks all the boxes. It's just sort of a mentality thing that's sort of, you know, we're stuck in our ways and this has worked for so long. And yes, of course, you're going to have um, some infections and that's just sort of how it goes. And now you're shaking it up. Why should we accept, well, Many groups around the country have come up with alternative means to reduce infection. One is the rectal swab, mm -hmm. where they place a swab in your rectum and they basically culture the stool. And what is this person growing? And is it very resistant bacteria or is it very sensitive? And then that guides your targeted antibiotics. Mm -hmm. Well, one very nicely designed study out of Kaiser Permanente in Southern California, a urology group that does about 6,000 biopsies a year, actually showed that targeted versus empiric antibiotics, um, the targeted approach did not eliminate sepsis. In fact, okay. it didn't even eliminate sepsis in a, in a few cases where the patient proved to have quinolone-sensitive bacteria, thus they got quinolone antibiotics, mm -hmm. and they still had sepsis. It was one of the, um, the leaders in the Southern California Kaiser unit, um, Dr. Richard Zabo, who called me kind of out of the clear blue mm -hmm. after seeing one of my earlier works on YouTube and said, uh, I got a few questions about the, this technique that I can't appreciate from the video. Um, he's the author of the paper yeah. that basically said, you know, I am done with transrectal. I personally am done with it. I, I really don't understand why anyone would still cling to this old approach. Kind of archaic in a way. I mean, it's brutal to, th yeah. to say the least. And many very regarded and urologists that I respect um, in the field have said, well, you know, our infect, we don't have the infection problem. It's not a problem Are they doing biopsies? Here. Did you ask them if they're doing biopsies? <laughs> yeah, they're biopsies? doing biopsies. I think, um, you know, and I believe that, you know, the data shows it may be a, somewhat of a regional um, issue, but okay. not where, you know, one city has, you know, rate of 25% and then this other city has 0%. Zero, right. It's just not even uh, logical that even in those areas with lower rates are going to, to withstand the test of time. Right. 
even these orphan drugs, if you will, the immunoglycosides that are helping us in this battle, mm -hmm. we're already seeing resistant patterns develop there. And the other thing that really drove me to all this was active surveillance, which is a very humane approach to diagnosing men with low-risk prostate cancer without exposing them to radiation or surgery yeah. or any treatment. You actively watch them with a specific strategy. Often, their patients may undergo two or three biopsies through their course of being followed in this protocol. Right. If you get an infection, you know, every time you do a biopsy, you're rolling the dice. That I hope it doesn't happen this time. Right, right. So, what so you're just the... increasing your chances of getting an infection. Yeah. And well, initial studies showed that um, you didn't. And then a recent one from Peter Scardino's group up at um, Sloan Kettering showed that, no, there was a dramatic increase in infection rates yeah. in sepsis after being enrolled in active surveillance. And the fact of the matter is, if you infect somebody once and they're a candidate for active surveillance and you, the next year, you're going to do the same thing. You, I mean, they're petrified. Yeah. Wouldn't you Rightfully be? so. Absolutely. I mean, it's sort of like you had a bad experience. How many times it's like putting your hand on a hot stove. You only do that once. Exactly. <laughs> and the other thing that, I mean, cause infection is really front and center and it's a very good topic um, to promote this technique because everybody is concerned. The patient's, Absolutely. The doctors, mm -hmm. um, the insurance companies, Medicare, yeah. the hospitals were all very, very concerned. And in 2014, on my birthday, President Obama, um, a presidential order, mm -hmm. which many of us aren't aware of, was, you know, how we're going to combat the infection problem. And he is specifically giving the stewardship to physicians to change how to they do things. lead the battle here. That was a good sign. It was on your birthday, right? Yeah, I, th I thought it was. It was 2014. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, Therefore, I figured, you know, this is, I'm doing proper stewardship. This is the best way, which is none at all. I agree. Don't even use the antibiotic. New, using newer antibiotics or using old ones in combination is only going to lead to the same endpoint eventually. Right. So why not keep it simple? I agree. But the other important thing um, for me and other urologists is better diagnosis because you know, prostate biopsies with ultrasounding through the rectum, you know, it's not good enough to see the cancer. Right. And many have called it a random biopsying of the prostate. What we're doing is strategic sampling of the prostate. Um, in addition, because we're able to access the anterior half of the prostate, we're not as likely to miss cancers our first go around with a prostate biopsy. So you're not going to miss it and then they return and then it's worse. Exactly. That's always the fear. Yeah. Now, MRIs of the prostate have become very popular. MRI, uh, it's a new style of sequencing the MRI uh, okay. so that you can actually see with a very um, sharp um, detail of accuracy, potentially cancerous lesions. Okay. And therefore, it gives you a roadmap. Yeah. And we incorporate MRI into our system and MRI will be um, actually a formal fusion part of our next development, which hopefully will be uh, commercially available next year. This is a niche that I think is very a very nice niche to mm -hmm. have because there is a subset of patients where I just cannot, even though I see the, um, the disease on MRI and I cognitively attempt to sort of reconfigure the MRI into my real-time image of the ultrasound mm -hmm. and try to hit that 
sector of the prostate. Yeah. There are some lesions that I, I know are probably not well targeted with this cognitive approach. Okay. So there is a role for this fusion. Yeah. It's been heavily commercialized now, but most of those platforms are, are quite expensive and they're all transrectal. They're transrectal MRI ultrasound fusion units. And I, I just have no you know, interest in, in that type of system because, you know, I personally would, you know, I'm, I'm going to stay out of that, right? out of that market. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, are you the only transperineal, uh, local under local anesthetic biopsy device in the States? Well, um, this precision point transperineal access system is actually an access system. So mm-hmm. it allows you to access the perineum under local anesthesia, but be able to move throughout the prostate or the perineum. Mm-hmm. I mean, for that matter, you could actually have applications in women. But right. with this system, I mean, this is the only medical device uh, next to the stepper units to do transperineal, period. And really, Good. the stepper units and grid guiding approach was really not designed for biopsy. It was, you know, sort of a, a an alternative use where brachytherapy was its primary indication for these units, mm-hmm. but they thought this is another application. Right. This would be the first, you know, disposable, affordable access system to be able to do it with a free hand. Nothing's again with the stepper units. Your probe is actually locked into this this harness. Okay. With my technique, your hand is freely movable. It's more natural, like, and yeah. well, and that's the way transrectal is done. I wanted to try to take all of the mind hand eye coordination aspects of the transrectal approach and transition it to transperineal. So it's sort of like muscle memory. Exactly. Okay. And and it that's what it does and that's why you know the surgeons I've trained so far, you know, it just takes them a case or two and they're like usually the response is something like wow or awesome or what we hear a lot is damn it, why didn't I think of this? <laughs> and when somebody right. says damn it, I wish I would have thought of this, it it I think you you know you've you've done something good good because right. usually the best solutions to our problems some of the best technologies are those wow I I could have thought of that right why exactly. didn't I do that it's such a simple design um, and very user friendly and if you've got that already built in with the muscle memory of the previous procedure and you being a urologist so you have total practical application all across the board you're gonna see that and you did so good for you thank you. <laughs> If physicians listening to this or patients are interested, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you? Well, we're easy to find uh, two ways. One, you know, we're in Cumberland, Maryland, and or if you just type in Matthew Alloway, you'll you'll find me because mm-hmm. there's I googled myself, and <laughs> there is a Matthew Alloway in the UK. There's a couple of them there, but okay. I haven't found one in the United States. And they're so not are they urologists? No, they're not. See, there you go. <laughs> that would be, That's your descriptor. You could do that. Also, um, we're currently um, opening the perineologic.com website um, for full viewing. In other words, the site, if you enter it, it has a provider section and a patient section. Sure. The patient section is rich in um, background knowledge, our mission, and some, you know, less than graphic um, animations of the procedure. Sure. And then the provider part is rich of content of videos of various techniques and different size prostates, all the work that's led up to this. Right. So we're using the website as a 
is a, a teaching tool. Sure. Almost so that, you know, a well-trained urologist could view the work and, and most likely um, with just a little bit of coaching, make that transition safely. Yeah. Although we'll still ha- we're still going to have leaders around the country and around the world that will be you know training. institutions where you could go for a quick day of training because it probably would just take you know, three or four cases for the average urologist to pick right. up on the skill set necessary. That's great. So you're going to have like the Matthew Alloway training school. <laughs> we're going to do one in Cumberland. That's great because we have a really nice facility and yeah. it's a nice place for people to escape to. Sure. Um, and that way we can bring in more people. There's only one of me to run around the country. <laughs> this way we can bring people here right. and then spread the Bring knowledge. people to you. So that's good. That's that's excellent. So get on the website and check it out. And I guess if they want to, when can they purchase it? That's the next question. Well, the the regulatory aspects, we're, we're currently using um, the device um, and, and allowed to, uh, with the FDA under investigational use currently, mm-hmm. even though it's there's nothing that's going to change about the device. But in order to actually sell on the market, you have to have full FDA clearance. Right. And we're expecting that to occur ideally within the next eight weeks. Oh, fantastic. Um, it, we were hoping to have it for our launch, mm-hmm. but as many would guess, um, you know, going through these regulatory steps is an arduous process mm-hmm. and it's there's a great attention to detail and safety which we we meet all of those criteria but right. it just has to be reviewed just and rubber stamped, stamped. Yep, yeah exactly so for any inventors out there would you encourage them to do this since you've gone through the whole process well i i think it it you have to ask yourself two questions do i have the stomach for it mm-hmm. do i have the bandwidth for it okay um, the stomach for it really is the fact that, um, well, no, stomach and heart. Uh, because say, yeah. really for me, I mean, I've been working on this for, it was four years ago that I did my last transrectal biopsy. And over these four years, it went from developing the first technique to then trying to design a medical device. Mm-hmm. And I used, um, on my on my budget at the time, I used 3D printer technology to make at least a dozen and a half iterations of concepts. I would sketch them out. I affiliated myself with um, a uh, CAD designing 3D printer yeah, firm yeah, in Maryland. And, you know, I would send them the sketches. They would crank out a prototype. Mm-hmm. I would examine the prototype. I would think about the prototype, do another one, do another one. And after doing this, you know, I reached the point where I thought, I have this about as good as I can get. Mm-hmm. So then you have to go through the patenting process. And, you know, often you start with a provisional patent and then you go with, you know, with the um, the traditional patent. The provisional patent is essentially your place in line. Okay. We didn't always have the provisional patent for these devices. Mm-hmm. You would basically, um, your, your notes and sketches and your, anything historically documented would put your place in line. But now often you want to get yourself in line formally with the provisional patent and then you do the full patent um, within a year after the provisional so we went through those stages then you have to figure out what are you going to do at this point are you going to try to carry this thing to market Mm -hmm. which that's where the stomach comes in (laughs) Um, the heart is always there but the stomach is like do i have can i stomach you know these costs and these disappointments and these, you know, you have to be, you know, a little bit of a salesman again. Right. If you want to, you know, go one way or the other. 
So the shoe salesman aspect really helped you then? That, yeah, that helped. Um, <laughs> and then, you know, it was a matter of finding, you know, uh, we found a firm, CSSI, out of um, Owing Mills, Maryland, that helps with any of the various aspects and sort of you know, guide you to the right people for certain things that okay. they may not offer. But we used a, a manufacturing firm, engineering firm up in Boston, nice. Bridge Medica. And with, you know, our first meeting, you know, you got a team of, I think it was five engineers in the room and me explaining my prototype and all the concepts, some of which we've talked about here tonight, and then brainstorming about concept design. And that takes a a lot of time to do it right. Yeah. And it's got to be really good to just sort of, you have this, your baby of a device and then hand it over to like a bunch of engineers that are going to think of all the possibilities that you did not even consider. Exactly. And then you wonder when they're done, you're looking at, <laughs> we just went through, um, finished phase. Th- well, we're finishing phase three, but when we finished phase two, there were pictures of my prototype next to the new one, the uh-huh. position point. It's like, wow. <laughs> um, but it, it's so impressive to see what, when you put all these engineering minds in the same room yeah. and they talk about it and they, and they challenge me and they, discuss tolerances and the real mechanics and then we build that into we back build that into the patent to right. broaden the patent to protect okay. the ip so that so you someone can constantly improve around. it and then just add what all the improvements are to the patent yeah it was sort a little of. bit more complicated you can't at this point i wouldn't be able to add any more we right, had one right. chance to do it before a certain deadline okay and you know we just went you know, mad trying to dream up. Right. Any um, possibility. You know, yeah. And then, um, and then that process, and then you get into the manufacturing and injection molds and validation testing and biocompatibility, sterilization. And it's, it's been exciting. It's yeah. so fun. It sounds and, like you're not totally exhausted and you're not upset about the whole process because you're still talking about it with such passion. So I feel like it didn't, you didn't have, do you have any doubts going through? Of course. No, no, no. I mean, I knew well in part because my wife, Kelly, was such a, a strong fan and such a, a great coach to keep, you know, keep my mind in the game and say, this is, you know, you know, you can change things and you've got to do it. Yeah. And that was an inspiration. But I mean, I go to bed at night, I'm thinking about it. And mm-hmm. when I wake up in the morning, the first thing I carry, you know, continue where I left off uh, with the thoughts and I keep driving it through the day. And it, you know, it's the nice thing is it's part of my day job. Also, I'm a urologist. Therefore, right. you know, it's just part of my whole existence. Yeah. And I've been living like that now for, it's been about a year and a half where it's been this intense. Yeah. And I don't know that I could stop doing it now because you know, this, this, this company, um, perineologic is much more, again, it's not this one trick pony. This is, and I wish I could share this with your audience, but you're going to see a lot more from this. It's it's about time that a new medical device company enters the market with a, just a slightly different philosophy and approach to things. Yeah. And we're looking at things in the software department, um, aspect space in medicine. And, and it's not just all about simple, you know, devices. It's going to be a little more expansive than that. Yeah. You're pushing forward. You need to do that in order to elicit change. And this is a really good thing. I want to really concisely describe what, we're up to mm-hmm. and why people should pay attention. And really we're, as we talked about before this interview, social media is really important because 
like you were mentioning, how can one get one of these techniques or how can they see you? Yeah. Well, there needs to be some public awareness. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, when robotic technology came out, this is a really, really interesting uh, parallel that, you know, there was really no data to show that robotic prostatectomy was superior to open. Mm -hmm. In fact, I, I saw it at, the AUA in 2007, I thought, this is nifty, but I don't think this is going to fly. I mean, I can't imagine power. a robot doing the surgery control by the surgeon. Mm-hmm. Well, this was driven, you know, a lot of savvy men started thinking about the potential advantages of having it done robotically versus open. Mm-hmm. And that drove the market without any data to say it's a better cancer operation. Right. It really was proving less blood loss and less pain and, and likely a shorter hospital stay and a, a slightly quicker recovery. That yeah. was about it. And now it it's basically the standard. I was going to say it's standard of care now. And that's one example. And that was driven by, you know, very, you know, an educated populace saying, no, what about that robotic approach? Mm-hmm. And I know... You know, biopsying the prostate isn't as sexy as robotic surgery, but I would tell you that um, I think wow. it's is important because what we're doing with this product is well, we're actually yeah. we, we will save lives by eliminating infection. Right. Okay. And we're going to make a better diagnosis of your cancer. It all starts with the biopsy. Right. Let's do it right. Let's do it the safest way. And everybody's happy. And everybody leaves happy. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Matt, thank you so much for coming back. And you can come anytime you want, especially when you do brand new and great things. Lydia, thank you very much. No problem. For more information on what you've heard on today's show, make sure to head over to our website. And that's recordtalklisten.com. We will have direct links to Perineologic's website. And you should definitely check it out. So while you're on our website, we have a sponsor page. If you feel like this might be a good platform for your company company to advertise on, uh, be aware it's worldwide. Your advertisement doesn't go away. And no matter how many times that podcast is downloaded, which is thousands of times, um, your ad will remain. So it's a pretty good bang for your buck. So if you're interested, head over to our sponsorship tab. We have everything available there for you. Uh, we also encourage our listeners to subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already. That way you don't even have to think about it. It just automatically shows up on your listening device and you can just hit the road running with us in your ears. So it'll be great. Uh, If this is the first time for you listening to the podcast, you have a lot of catching up to do. This is episode number 74. Make sure you don't miss any of our other previous episodes. They're pretty fantastic. As always, we love to hear from the listeners. So if you have questions, comments, uh, ideas for a show, or if you would like to be on the show, make sure you contact us. You can do that via email, and that's recordtalklisten at gmail.com, Facebook at facebook.com slash recordtalklisten, and Twitter. It's fantastic. We're, we are active Twitter users, and we're at RTL Pod. So get in contact us. We'd love to hear from you. This has been another episode of Record Talk Listen, where I hit record, people talk, and hopefully you listen. Until next time, thank you so much. Thank you.